Once upon a time, a mother bird lay a nest of eggs, each pulsing with warmth, waiting to hatch. But before this bird was a mother, she was an artist. She had spent several weeks weaving together grass and twigs, sticks and leaves. High above the forest canopy, among the clouds, she was an architect, engineering an intricate structure that would protect her young. With few resources, she even used her own saliva to bind the material together. Fluttering around, she crisscrossed her talons and nudged her beak to press the stems into a patterned knot that would cushion her eggs from falling, from cracking on the limbs of the trees below, from landing unborn in the darkness of the forest floor. Days passed. She finished her nest. She lay her eggs. She warmed them gently with her body. She waited. When her babies hatched, screaming in the unfamiliar air, she fell in love with each begging mouth. But soon she had to leave. There was no food. Her throat had already gagged and spasmed all the nutrition she had into them. She waited as long as she could, perched fragilely at the edge of the nest. At last, she turned to look back at her children, all crying out for her, begging to her, in a sound older than language, not to go. Then she turned away, facing the sky, and dove. Part 1. The Student Recently, I achieved a milestone toward which I had been working for quite some time. After four years of undergraduate studies, two years of postgraduate school, and a year-long residency, I was finally granted a position at the J.T. Sandhurst Physical Linguistics Department, where at long last I witnessed the processing of physical language with my own eyes. But of course, I did not witness every step of the process. I am literate, an obvious statement given that I am writing these words now. And, as we all know, only the illiterate can bear witness to language in its whole and physical form. This is why I have always held a particular curiosity toward illiterates, especially those who work among the physical linguists. The chief illiterate at the J.T. Sandhurst Physical Linguistics Department, whom I met on my very first day, was a gentleman by the name of Richard Hogue. A quiet man in his early 70s, Hogue walked with a slight limp as he made his rounds down the plain white halls of the department, going back and forth all day long between the secure language storage room and the processing machine. Most of the linguists, myself included, worked in laboratories behind closed doors, emerging in our white lab coats only when we needed more samples from the processing machine. As for Hogue, he wore boots, a plain white t-shirt under denim work overalls, and round eyeglasses. 
Often I was reminded of a school janitor when I saw him shuffle silently around the corner, his eyes cast downward at the floor ahead of him, as if looking for dirty spots to mop up. But obviously he did not carry a mop. Only the lead bismuth eutectic box that contained the whole and physical form of language, which Hogue carried in his gloved hands like a treasure chest. I mentioned that I had met Hogue on my first day at the department. Allow me to describe this interaction. I had arrived quite early that morning, hoping to start off on a strong footing. Indeed, perhaps I had arrived a bit too early, for the halls of the department were still darkened, and a palpable silence lingered. When I happened to turn a corner, that's when I saw Hogue standing off by the wall, his gaze cast upward. He was looking at a wide glowing screen which was hanging there upon the wall. I recognized the screen to be showing that day's itinerary, the series of planned experiments, the schedule of tasks, and the staffing rotation. Hogue's gaze was determined and unmoving, and I found myself pausing to observe him. As I watched him for nearly a minute, a terrible sympathy overtook me, for I realized he was trying to comprehend what was written on the screen. Of course, as an illiterate, he could not comprehend it. He was like a deaf man trying to hear music, or a baby struggling to form words. Although it is generally agreed that literates like myself should avoid conversing with illiterates like him, I thought perhaps I could be an agent of change. I took it upon myself to say hello, and, I hoped alleviate some of his despair. Good morning, I said. I must have surprised him, for Hogue spun around quite abruptly, his face reddened with embarrassment. I'm sorry, I said. I did not mean to surprise you. I am new here, I explained. This is my first day. You are Richard Hogue, yes? The chief illiterate? He nodded, though he did not speak. I decided to inquire further by asking him, Would you like me to explain what is written on the screen there? Now he shook his head. I must go, he mumbled. Much to do. It is no trouble, I said, sensing his shyness. You see... These are words and numbers that explain the work that we will be doing today in the department. I pointed up at the screen, waiting a moment so that he could comprehend what I was telling him. There are many tests we will be running on the language, I said. Our goal is to probe deep enough to understand the true nature of physical language, so that we might guide it to the fullest of its potential. None of it would be possible without your help, of course, I added. He nodded again, and then I noticed a strange expression pass over his face. Later on, I took it to be gratitude, for Hogue thanked me and proceeded down the hall. Only half of the lights were turned on, glowing in staggered intervals. 
And so I watched him pass between light and darkness, light and darkness, until he disappeared around the corner. The acres and acres of headstones, all of uniform size and shape, stretch on and on over the rolling countryside of the cemetery. Even now, as we approach the 90th anniversary of the discovery of physical language, much of it remains a mystery. Physical linguists like myself and my peers have tasked ourselves with studying its manifold properties. Consider that, for so long, language was nothing more than a system of communication, a matter of speech, sentences, and gestures, words on a page, audio recordings, etc. In those days, the origin of language was still unknown, and here we must be careful not to deride our predecessors for believing language was the evolution of mere animal grunts or that it evolved as a natural offspring of emotion or logical thought. Nevertheless, we all know today that language in its ephemeral state, that is, words, gestures, letters, and other symbols, is merely the byproduct of physical language. Just as ocean tides are the byproduct of the gravitational interaction between our Earth and the Moon. Remove the Moon from the sky, and tides fall still. Likewise, without physical language and its radiating effects, we would all be mute, wandering around with no understanding of one another. Even the barks and grunts of animals, which are themselves all side effects of the presence of physical language, would be gone from this world. And yet, I'd ask that you try to imagine the shock our predecessors must have felt upon first discovering physical language. All school children today know the story of those first discoverers, how they had set forth on an expedition into the jungles of Brazil to study an indigenous tribe, one that was unique for having no form of written language. Isolated for centuries, this tribe of illiterates seemed utterly perplexed by the very notion of written language. As if to offer explanation to the expedition, the tribal members led the outsiders deeper into the jungle, through a long cave, beyond a raging waterfall, and presented what would later be described by the lone survivor of the expedition as a sight that was both baffling and familiar, physical and not, bright and dark, dangerous and comforting. The lone survivor had been just a boy of seven years of age, accompanying his father, an anthropologist. After witnessing his father and all the others on the expedition drop dead in manners most foul, he took it upon himself to understand the nature of what he had seen. He spent eight years stranded with the tribe during which time he was able to study the strange object in the jungle. Why were he and the other tribal members able to stare at it for hours without harm, while the expedition members had immediately died at the mere sight of it? 
he came to conclude that the only discerning feature that had spared both himself and the tribal members from death was simple, yet bewildering. None of them could read. You know those Sherpas in Tibet? The ones who guide climbers up to the top of Mount Everest? Said my department advisor, a man named Lewis Wilson. It was an early afternoon during my second week on the job, and Lewis and I had been chatting by the processing machine, its low oscillations purring like a cat. At that moment, Richard Hogue was coming down the hall toward us with the box of physical language in his arms. Well, that's our Sherpa right there, Lewis said, nodding in Hogue's direction. If we're mountain climbers in this scenario, he's the only one of us who doesn't need an oxygen tank strapped to his back. It is taken for granted now that only illiterates can witness and interact with the physical form of language, which is why those of us who labored in the J.T. Sandhurst Physical Linguistics Department had to rely on illiterates like Hogue as our guides while we conducted our vital work. As the chief illiterate, Hogue's job was to manage the acquisition, storage, and processing of the whole and physical form of language, jobs we ourselves could not do. It was an honorable role, the highest position an illiterate can achieve, although in practice it was a simple and mindless task. Each week, Hogue received shipments of physical language that had been safely stabilized within the standard lead bismuth eutectic boxes. He would store those boxes in a secure back room until it was time for the language to be processed. Hogue would then receive a beep on his phone multiple times a day, and he would then carry one of the boxes to the processing machine, a large contraption that resembled two metal pizza ovens fused together. The backside of the machine was hidden behind a secure door. Hogue would enter the door, close and lock it behind him, and only then would he open the box and load the physical language into the machine. After a few minutes, the language would pass through to the other side of the machine, processed into matter safe enough for literates to study without negative effects. I do not know much about Hogue's backstory, although I assume his childhood was spent as a language gatherer, as is the case with most illiterates. Illiterate children, as we all know, are especially adept at finding and retrieving physical language in the wild. Of course, we still do not know why language in its physical form should manifest in some places, but not others. There seems to be no constant variable among the locations where language deposits have been discovered. I have heard tales of illiterate language gatherers diving hundreds of feet deep in the chopping waves to pry language loose from coral reefs. I have heard of illiterate children scrambling across tree canopies, plucking language from the branches like coconuts, 
I have heard of treks up the highest peaks, through the deepest ravines. No literate person is allowed to witness this, of course. It would be far too risky. Most illiterates lose their ability to sense the placement of language deposits by the age of 10, after which they are retired like milk cows in pasture, free to live out the rest of their days happily in the tent cities, surviving off the generosity of government subsidies. But then there are curious cases, those one-in-a-million individuals, who manage to rise above their shortcomings and reach the level of chief illiterate. Richard Hogue was such a man. Seeing him walk down the halls of the department each day, carrying that metal box in his arms, always filled me with curiosity. I admit, I would have loved nothing more than to corner Hogue and pepper him with the same questions all linguists dwell upon. What does he see when he opens the lid? What is the shape of physical language? How does it fit within the box? What is the color? Is there sound? Is there variance in appearances based upon different dialects? That's not what I would ask first, my advisor Lewis said. Is that so? I said to Lewis. What would you ask first, then? The smell. Whole and physical language has got to have a smell, right? Well, what is it, then? By now, Hogue had stepped behind the barrier and was loading the whole physical language into the machine. In a minute or so, the language would be processed into a stable form, ready for study and experimentation, and we could remove it from the chute here on the other side. Just then, a vacuum-sealed door on this side of the machine opened and the processed language appeared in a large glass beaker, sealed with a cork stopper, not unlike a wine bottle. They had experimented with glass, metal, and even diamond stoppers, but strangely, the cork stopper yielded the most consistent results. Lewis turned to remove the beaker from the machine, the processed language gleaming in the artificial light. Even in its processed state, physical language remains a beautiful substance. It resembles fine sand with a faintly pinkish hue, and it is also strangely heavy. A single cup of the sand weighs roughly 7.4 pounds, or 3,356.6 grams. When put under a microscope, that is when the language reveals its true beauty. Constellations of color and electric activity swirl like a cloud of heat lightning, always disassembling and reassembling, constantly creating itself anew. And maybe that's the real reason they won't ever let us behind the barrier, Lewis said now, turning back to face me. It's not about seeing the language in its pure state. It's just that it smells so bad, we puke on the spot. I'm talking baby diapers mixed with rotten eggs bad. We'd puke so much, we'd die. Lewis was known across the department for his good humor, 
but I should note that his comment on the smell of language, though clearly made in jest, was not inherently less reasonable than any other theory. No one can say for certain what the sight of physical language does to the body and mind of a literate who happens upon it. All we know is that the outcomes, though varied, are always distressing. Luckily, in all the years since physical language has been discovered, exposure to literates has been all but eliminated, thanks to rigorous safety protocols. Yet still there are those who say we should have never tampered with physical language in the first place. I have said already that literates cannot bear witness to physical language without suffering deadly side effects. As such, we have no notion about the state of physical language, its contours and curves, its weight and color, and yes, its smell too. Only the illiterates can grasp these factors. You may wonder, as linguists have for decades, why is this so? The simple answer, at least for now, is we do not know. You may also ask, why can the illiterates not then explain what they see to us, or for Lewis's sake, what they smell? But this is the greatest conundrum, for all attempts at translating what illiterates see yields only further confusion. I have heard it said that physical language looks like the shape of the sky if the sky were to be pressed together into a single form. What this means, I cannot say. I have also been told that physical language is both round and jagged at the same time, and that it resembles a school of fish hidden behind a curtain, more shadow than shape. Once, a retired chief illiterate who came to speak to our class during my postgraduate studies said that it was impossible for him to describe physical language to those who had not seen it for themselves. I cannot explain color to a blind man, he said. These questions gnaw at most linguists for a time, but ultimately they are set aside as unsolvable riddles akin to the meaning of life or the fate of the dead. To dwell upon them too deeply is to invite madness. That is why it was all the more troubling when, one morning a few weeks later, as I arrived at work, a loud siren pierced the hall of the department chambers. I was just on my way to the processing machine when I heard it. The chaotic noise was then followed by the sight of Richard Hogue hobbling out through the barrier door with, of all people, my advisor Lewis lying limp over his shoulder. I and my co-workers were all so stunned that it took a moment to register what Hogue was saying. Later, we would all agree that the scene was quite concerning, but what had troubled us the most was not the way Lewis was sprawled over Hogue's shoulder, 
limp and unresponsive. No, it was the expression on Lewis's face. He was smiling, his eyes wide open. The next morning, I learned from one of the medical staff that the angelic, joyous expression had remained on Lewis's face even as his lungs filled with blood, even as he gurgled and coughed out pink strips of his own esophagus, and even after his heart stopped and his chest caved in. Here at the J.T. Sandhurst Physical Linguistic Department, safety is our number one priority. Managers should please review the following report with department staff members and direct all questions to human resources. Thank you. The report on the incident and the resulting interview with Hogue was made public to the department staff by the end of the week although it seemed to raise far more questions than it answered. Hogue had explained that leading up to Lewis's death, the morning had proceeded in a typical fashion. He had just transported the day's first language box to the processing machine, and, having situated himself behind the barrier, with the door sealed and locked behind him, he was going through regular procedure when the barrier door somehow opened again behind him, and into the room stepped Lewis. Hogue had no answer as for how Lewis was able to gain entry. All he could say was that Lewis quickly overpowered him and stole the physical key to the language box. Hogue knew, however, that the box also required an audible password to open, which would have barred Lewis from gaining entry. He was... Therefore, quite shocked when Lewis uttered the exact words that unlocked the box, then swung open the lid and gazed at the contents within. Hogue said a reaction occurred within roughly five to seven seconds. When Lewis fell to the floor, Hogue made pains to close the box and secure the language, at which point he then carried Lewis out to receive medical care. That was the extent of the report, and, as I said, it did little to appease both the administrative staff and the linguists like myself. When I saw Hogue walking down the hall later that afternoon, I could envision the cloud of suspicion hanging over him. How was Lewis able to enter the barrier? How could he have possibly known the audible password, which only Hogue was believed to have known? Had Hogue been tricked somehow? We wondered why the administrative staff did not simply review the security footage, and it was only the next day that the embarrassing truth was revealed. The security cameras had suffered a catastrophic failure just the day before and were still offline. This failure was made all the more egregious when, just a few days later, two more workers in the department managed to gain access to the language. This time it was two women, one Asia Jackson and one Dia Mehta, 
who had broken into the language's storage area late at night. Workers found them sprawled out in the early morning. I do not have the full details, but I heard they were found with small holes dotting all over their bodies, from their feet to their necks, even into their eyeballs, as if they had been stabbed with needles thousands of times, like sewing pin cushions. What I can say for sure, what has been confirmed by those who found them, and by the medical staff as well, is that both were smiling, their joyous faces frozen in rigor mortis. The department was formally shut down that week. A commission was formed. All department staff, Hogue included, were escorted off the premises under law enforcement supervision. Alas, that included myself as well. I could not comprehend how a position I had worked years to secure could be ripped away from me within a matter of weeks, all because of conditions over which I had no control. I spent the next few months cocooned in a state of growing isolation. Early on, I read everything about the commission overseeing the dissolution of the department. But it soon became apparent that the men and women of the commission were able to conclude nothing. The explanation for the deaths was hampered by a shocking lack of evidence. No witnesses, no security footage, nothing whatsoever. On live-streamed video, I watched as administrator after administrator regurgitated the same talking points. I want to sincerely and humbly apologize to those impacted by the disruption. It caused a tremendous amount of anguish. We have earned a reputation for being well-managed, financially sound, and responsible in our approaches to underwriting and risk. We had cyber defenses in place, but the unfortunate reality is that those defenses were compromised and I realized perhaps they knew far less than I had assumed. If I had felt an initial pang of guilt over my theft of a beaker of processed language, I must admit that guilt soon dissipated. Yes, I will confess it here. I did indeed steal a sample of the processed sand as I was leaving the department, but only because I knew it would be put to far better use in my hands rather than locked away in a storage department. Knowing that the security system was still dysfunctional was another strong motivator in my decision, for I knew it was unlikely I would be caught. And as I watched those inept administrators during the commission hearings, I was confident I had made the right decision. I became a nocturnal practitioner studying the processed language under various stimuli and conditions. Days turned into weeks, weeks into months. I neglected my own physical health and hygiene for the sake of the work. Food was delivered to my door by courier, and I placed the empty takeout boxes and cartons out in the hall, the digestive byproduct of an organism that had become the room in which I occupied. Day and night ceased to matter, 
and I found even my senses were altering as I spent greater and greater percentages of my waking hours staring at the dissolution and reformation of processed language at 1,000 times magnification through a microscope. When I dreamed, I no longer occupied a space of my own dimensions. Instead, I had entered the dimension of the language. In one particular dream, I was passing through a deserted expanse of geography that resembled the cell structure of language, its honeycomb brackets and bulbous atolls, its gray glens and green gorges. I realized I was no longer walking, but floating, drifting, pulled by the same magnetism that pulled and stretched and twisted language itself. Buoyed in that tide, I at last envisioned a distant shore. There upon that shore I could discern something structural in the distance. A cathedral? A city? The shape hummed upon the horizon, altogether distinct from the geography in which I was floating. But before I could see it clearly in the haze, I woke up, and I was once again greeted with the abrupt sight of my own physical dimension. Bed, desk, lamp, wall. A pool of lamplight spilled over a pile of empty cartons, takeout boxes, and jars of urine. It was then that I made my decision. For months, I had been considering it, first as a ludicrous notion, and then as one that seemed more and more plausible. Indeed, within that room, I had made more progress in the understanding of processed language than could have been possible in years at the department. Freed from the hindrance of oversight and schedules, I had leaped generations ahead in what linguists could comprehend. The dead staff members at the department who had witnessed physical language, whether by choice or by force, had been demonstrably ill-prepared for the task. Their data had been foolish. Like underwater divers who had ascended too early, they had suffered a catastrophic bends. But had I not been living within my own hyperbaric chamber these last many months? Indeed, I was convinced I had restructured my own brain chemistry, so much so that I could now witness physical language in its whole form, could now see resolutely that glimmering cathedral beyond the horizon. Throughout history, virologists like Jonas Salk, Marina Voroshilova, and Mikhail Chumakov had tested their vaccines on themselves confident that their findings were sound. It was now time for me to do the same with my own hypothesis, with my own body, my own consciousness. But to do so, I would need to enlist the assistance of someone who could grant me access to physical language. It took me nine weeks to find Richard Hogue.
The journey to reach him took another month, and when I at last stepped off the bus, I saw mountains ridged in the distance, their peaks clear-cut by mining operations. I had tracked Hogue down to a tent city here in the state of Perryton, once a bustling mining community. Now it was nothing more than a dumping ground for the illiterates. I was told Hogue was living at the edge of the community, situated beside what I had presumed to be a lake as I was approaching, but that which I soon realized, by the terrible stench wafting in the breeze toward me, was in fact a lake of sewage. Making my way to the tent, I saw people wandering up to the edge of the lake with what appeared to be buckets of urine and feces. Up close, it was indisputable. The illiterates stopped just beside what I'd been told was Hogue's tent. There, they leaned out over the shore of the lake and tossed the sewage with abandon. Feces and urine glimmered in the sunlight as it splashed on the thick surface. I nearly vomited as I passed them by and approached the tent. Excuse me, I said when I reached the flaps at the entrance, which were billowing faintly in the rancid breeze. I heard no reply. I then called out Hogue's name. After waiting some moments more, I leaned into the tent, saying, Richard Hogue, excuse me, but I, I wanted to speak with you. I had not prepared myself for the transformation I was about to witness. There, among a tattered pile of blankets, was a man I would not have recognized had I not been searching for him specifically these past several months. Hogue was gaunt. His hair was long and patchy. His face pocked with bug bites. He raised his gaze and regarded me in the entrance of the tent with absolutely no expression on his face. I introduced myself to him, and when he did not reply, I expounded, I I'm not quite sure if you recall, but I was one of the staff members at the J.T. Sand... Yes, he wheezed. I remember. I stood still for a moment while Hogue drew the blankets tighter around his body, as if he were freezing cold. Stacked on the wall across from him, I noticed, were several cans of soup, vegetables, and beans. All of them were horribly dented, some of the cans scratched. I did not see a can opener. Yes, well, I said, nodding as I returned my gaze to him, but I found words caught in the back of my throat. Based upon Hogue's appearance, it was plain that the man had suffered a great deal in the months since the department had been shuttered. Though he was illiterate, he had been lucky enough to live in far more civilized environs for most of his life. Like a house cat that had been excommunicated to the streets, he lacked the experience that would have conditioned him for an environment such as this. Those illiterates outside who were now tossing buckets of feces into the lake 
saw nothing wrong or strange with their actions. To Hogue, it must have been quite an adjustment. I am glad you remember me, I said to him at last. You may be wondering why I am here. Well, I would like to say that I recall fondly our time spent together, brief though it may have been, and I would very much like to ask if you could- Please, beans, he interrupted. He raised his own finger and then stabbed it toward the wall opposite me, where the canned food was stacked. Please, beans, he repeated. Yes, I said. Those do appear to be beans. Classic style mixed vegetables, he said, moving his finger to the side. I don't quite understand what your chunky soup, he said, still pointing at the wall of cans. Grilled sirloin steak with beef broth and hearty vegetables. Classic chicken noodle, tomato, shrimp, chowder. Would you like for me to open a can for you? I said. Only when I began to reach toward the soups, only when I began to say, I really don't mind, sir, if you need help opening the can. Here, let me grab one for you. Only then did Hogue fling aside his blankets and rise up to face me with the quickness of someone decades younger. These beans! He shouted as he lunged around me. He picked up a can and tossed it on the ground. Classic style mixed vegetables! He screamed, throwing another can, this one in my direction. This unexpected response from him continued, Hogue grabbing cans and tossing them at me as he yelled, Chunky soup, grilled sirloin steak, with beef broth and hearty vegetables, tomato, shrimp chowder. He was panting, his hair ragged around his face, his eyes glistening. Look for yourself, he shouted. Read the label. Cans lay all around me like debris. Despite his impetuousness, I did tilt my gaze downward. Lee's beans, the label of one said. Classic style mixed vegetables, read another. They were all there. Chunky soup grilled sirloin with beef broth and hearty vegetables, tomato, shrimp chowder. Well, that's quite a feat, I said, picking up one of the cans. You have a very good memory. Who told you what these words mean? Hogue reached down to pick up the blankets he'd thrown off, draping them now over his shoulders like a cloak. Be it so he mumbled, his voice far away. We will write our memoirs. Yes, we must be employed, for work is the scythe of time. 
After all, a man ought to fulfill his destinies. This is my grand doctrine. Let mine also be accomplished. Hogue now reached down from one of the cans that had rolled toward him, then smashed it against a stone on the floor of his tent so skillfully that the top sliced clean off. Welcome to St. Helena. By now I had grown weary of his delusions, his madness. This pockmarked, tattered, illiterate man was living in a tent beside a lake of sewage. Why had I not addressed him more forcefully from the start? Sir, I have to admit I have grown tired of humoring your whimsy, I said to him, a touch of malice beneath the tone of my voice. I have come here, in fact, sir, I have traveled great distances to get here, in order to engage your expertise, your job, your obligation, sir, and I refuse to leave until I have received, at the very least, a proper response. Have you anything to say? Language is a funny thing. Bean juice slid down his chin and collected at his chest hair. I watched him dig his fingers into the can. You ever think about it? What it means to read? He said scooping handfuls of beans into his mouth. Once you learn to do it, it's impossible to not do it. You can't look at a word and not know what it means. It's as if you're brainwashed. Random marks on a page that meant nothing to you before might as well have been leaves in the wind. And now suddenly, they tell a story You're sobbing over those leaves in the wind. He set the can down, licked each one of his fingers, and then said, But you've never seen language when it's just sitting there, have you? You've never held it in your hands. I shook my head, for he seemed to be wishing for a response. No, I admitted. I have not. Would you like to? He leaned over to the edge of the tent, his eyes still fixed on mine, and pulled off a blanket that had been draped over what I'd believed was nothing more than a crate. But there before me, in a cloud of freshly disturbed dust, I saw the lead bismuth eutectic box that contained the whole and physical form of language. No, it it can't be. Yes, it is. Is is that really the language? Here, right here, the language right here. I have the key and he reached into the pocket of his tattered pants and held it out to me. A simple brass key. There were so many boxes in storage, left to waste away. I could not part 
without at least one. Slowly, I took the key from his hand. It was heavy and cold. You are different from the others. Yes, I said. In that moment, I knew it to be true. I am. I am. I could see it the moment I met you. I crawled forward and slid the key into the box, then turned the key. But it would not open. The passcode, I said, realizing it now. I need the audible passcode. Hogue was seated across the tent, looking at me. You really want it? Yes. Are you ready? Truly? I am. I am. I don't know. No, give it to me. It may be too risky. No, you give it to me. Give me the passcode. G- give me the passcode. Give me the fucking passcode. Right now. You old fuck. Give me the goddamn passcode. Give me the passcode. <sighs> I am embarrassed to say I was a bit flustered. And, indeed, at that very moment, I happened to notice a can on the ground that had rolled over to my feet, which I then grasped and hoisted in the air with my arm cocked back. Although I am not proud to admit it, I proceeded to smash the can into the old man's head approximately four times to ensure he understood that I would not leave without the passcode. I would not leave without the passcode. Blood now gushing from the gashes on his forehead, the old man sputtered, Without, without me, you will never see the language. Frustrating as it was, I had to agree with him, and so I decided to temper my passions for the moment. Then tell me, I said. Tell me the passcode, and we'll be done with this. Hogue hobbled over to the edge of the tent, blood still pouring from his head onto the floor. He grabbed something in both hands, then turned around and held the items out to me. They were... I realized, a pencil and a notebook. Please, I will give you the passcode. But first, I want you to explain what brought you here. I don't understand. He held out the notebook and pencil again. Your story... Tell me your story. What led you to this tent in this moment? Why would you want that? It's of no use to you. Please. It is all I ask. I stood still for a moment, trying to comprehend his request. And it was only then 
when I beheld the sad man before me at length, in his tattered robes, his face blood-drenched, his hair tangled and knotted, that I realized why such a man would want a notebook filled with language he could not understand. Like a child playing in a plastic toy house, he wanted to pretend. It was as simple and heartbreaking as that. He could no sooner read the words I wrote than could a little girl purchase and manage a real home. His was a play world, an imaginary world within his mind. The real world, the lake of feces and the hordes of tattered masses, was simply too much for him to bear. So I took the pencil. I took the notebook. And now I am almost finished with my narrative. Perhaps I should have just scribbled gibberish here instead. The illiterate Hogue would not have known the difference. He is seated now in the corner of the tent, dabbing at the blood on his forehead. The only sound, the scratching of my pencil on this page. But perhaps it is just as well that I play along with his fantasy. If only because, soon enough, when I become the first to transcend the invisible plane between the literates and the illiterates, these pages will serve as a historic testament of the moment just before I severed the boundaries between what was possible and what was previously thought impossible. I feel I am about to step out into a strange new world, a new planet even. At last, I will behold what lies on that distant shore. I am ready. Part 2 The Master It was a little girl who saved my life. She was the daughter of a researcher at the linguistic department. I remember the yellow dress she wore. Her father had brought her into the department for reasons I cannot say. But he had just left her in a side room in the back, near the bathrooms. It happened to be the same room where I ate my lunch in private each day. When I walked in and saw her sitting there, in her yellow dress, she looked like a vision. She was not shy. She smiled, said hello. She was too young to know she wasn't supposed to talk to me. Her name was Amelia. She had a picture book open on the table. She asked if I wanted to read to her. I am sorry, I told her. I cannot read. She did not believe me. She said, Really? I said, Yes, my dear. I am sorry. She began to pout. She shook her head. 
everybody should read, she said. Then she said, I can teach you. I will never forget the pictures in the book. A little girl and a little boy. A dog. A house. A pleasant street. White fence. Green trees. So different from where I spent my childhood. Amelia swung her feet as she read aloud. Look. Look. See it go. Jane said, I see a big yellow car. See the yellow car go. Dick said, I see it. I see the big yellow car. I want to go away in it. I want to go away. Away. I remember how Amelia touched her finger to the page when she said a word out loud. How she pointed at the picture and said what she saw. I still dream of it almost every night. When her father came into the room and found her, he said, Amelia, what are you doing? What's the matter with you? And he pulled her arm and she cried as he dragged her out. And the book remained on the table. I waited. I waited longer. Then I took the book and slid it into my bag. That night I looked through the pages. Amelia had pointed to every word when she had read out loud, and I remembered what each word meant. Look, look, I see a big yellow car. I want to go away in it. I want to go away, away. It took four months until I could see the words for myself. Language, I told you, is a funny thing. It changes the brain. But you did not understand. You did not listen. You and everyone else at the department. I knew they were sending me away. Their eyes said what their lips would not. I passed them by down the hall of the department, and their eyes spoke plainly. They would replace me soon. I was old, worn down. And so, when, once again, a person came to me seeking the language, I did what I had never done before. In all my decades, the dozens and dozens of requests over my career, those who were convinced they were different, they could see it, and whatever would happen would not happen to them. And so when he came to me seeking the language, I finally said, Yes. 
I finally opened the box to show them a world beyond their own. Whatever they had done, the sneaking around, the disrupted security cameras, I did not know. I did not care. I was being sent away, no matter what happened. And they learned this simple lesson. You cannot build a boat while you are floating in water. But I knew, if you start on dry ground, if you build the boat there first, you can be ready when the flood surrounds you. Meanwhile, you all believed you could walk on water, yet you could not even swim. But you... You, you were right about one thing. You were different. Different from the three dead at the department and the nine dead who came to find me afterwards, here in this tent city. You were special. You were closer. They all smiled when they saw the language. You screamed. You were wrong, though, about why I asked you to write your story. The true reason is because I knew you would never tell me yourself. You and all the others. You only speak honestly when you think you are not being heard. In your final moments, screaming and convulsing on the floor of my tent, I like to think you knew what was happening. After you bled out, I dragged you out to the lake. It didn't matter who saw I threw you in. There you floated, and there you sank. You and all the others. That is where your story ends. But though you cannot hear me, I want to say this. I don't blame you. I don't blame you for trying to see it. It truly is so beautiful. To see it for the first time is to be reborn. I will never forget that moment in my life. I was a small child when I first saw it. I had climbed a tall tree, a tree that touched the clouds. All the other boys had grown afraid. But I was not afraid. I could climb forever. I was so small, so strong, and I heard music at the top of the tree. When I reached the highest branch, there was a nest. Baby birds were crying in a bed of twigs. 
Their mother was gone. I don't know where to. Had she left for food? Had she abandoned them? Or killed by a larger predator? Leaving her babies alone? Her fate, I did not know it. But she was gone. And her baby birds were frail and hungry. Alone for days. They were starving. Afraid. But the language was right beside them. I saw it growing off the tree like a miraculous fruit by their nest. The birds had been born and lived all their lives right beside it, not knowing how incredible it was, for it was all they knew, and their shrieks sounded like music. Near death, they stretched their beaks high and screamed. I could try for the rest of my life, and I will never be able to tell you what their screaming sounded like, how beautiful it was. But I hope that as your body twisted and your screaming voice tore through your throat, you were still alive enough to have heard it too. Mm-hmm. <laughs>